Hello, and welcome back to the Future in Focus podcast by LRQA, or if you're new here, thank you. In this episode, presenter Holly Plackett is joined by returning guest Megan Quinlan, Vice President of Food and Agriculture at Elevate, LRQA's ESG specialists to talk about human rights issues, specifically in the food industry and the growing importance of due diligence or HRDD. Hi Megan, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast again. We're here today to talk about the responsible sourcing of food products and ingredients and why it's so important to have visibility across your supply chain, especially when it comes to ensuring worker welfare. Could we start with an introduction to what human rights due diligence means? Sure. And thanks, Holly, of course, for having me back again. Always a pleasure. Um, what I'd say is, you know, we've generally moved from voluntary disclosure laws in 2010s, so such as the California Transparency Act or the Modern Slavery Acts, to mandatory due diligence in the 2020s. So um, acts such as EU CSRD, UFLPA, the Mexico Forced Labor Ban, etc. And so this is moving from you know, tell us what you're doing in human rights and within your due diligence to actually you must do these things. And so these emerging human rights due diligence requirements are actually holding companies accountable to ensure that no harm is done to people or environment in the creation of their products or services. So most organizations and countries consider the UN guiding principles on business and human rights as the authority on defining the HRDD principles. And so they've used these principles as the foundation of, of the new laws. And the UN guiding principles or the UNGPs basically say states and businesses must respect and protect human rights and are responsible for finding remedy when human rights are breached. So rights can include, for example, freedom from slavery and freedom from discrimination, but they can also be much broader reaching such as the right to food and right to clean water. So the overall mandatory due diligence basically means that businesses are now required to design and implement a risk management system, which would include identifying adverse human rights impacts and risks, preventing human rights violations in their direct supply chains as well as um, their, their supply chains, remediating violations to an end, and then reporting and tracking violations, risks, actions, and outcomes. Thanks, Megan. And there have been some quite upsetting articles that have emerged recently regarding worker welfare and the exploitation of children in the food industry in the US. Do you think this is just the tip of the iceberg? Well, you know, in all honesty, child labor violations in the US have nearly quadrupled since 2015, according to Labor Department data. And in Elevate's risk report that we published in January based on our EIQ data, which pulls from public data, but primarily in particular in this case is pulling from our audit data from the days we spend in the food processing sites, on farms, et cetera. And in a report, we highlighted the growth in child labor over the last several years. So, you know, what I can say is this is not an isolated incident, um, but I think companies, especially with all of the press, are coming to terms with it. Um, The root cause, though, is labor shortage and that that continues, which is why why the trend continues, of course. Um, what, I, what I do think, though, is most interesting, and, and maybe this goes to your point about the tip of the iceberg, and what I think is most interesting is the timing. So 
while companies are reporting up to their boards on their policies and programming related to HRDD or human rights due diligence, as we just discussed, and then also even more specifically on child labor due to all this press that we're seeing. But at the same time, what we're seeing is due to the labor shortage, some states are suggesting or publishing legislation to loosen restrictions on child labor, which is often in contrast with the ILO guidance and kind of the frameworks of um, human rights due diligence. Uh, so maybe perhaps there's time to get into that a little bit later. With that in mind, it seems supply chain transparency is more crucial than ever. Can we talk a bit about that? Sure. I mean, transparency is certainly a first step and it's transparency to the actors in your supply chains, transparency to the inherent and or actual risk that they represent. So there's a few key pieces of work here. At the end of the day, no one wants to hear it, to be honest with you, but there's no sexy database solution to automatically map your supply chain. The nice visualization only happens once the laborious work of really engaging heavily with your suppliers and collecting those SAQs that happen. And you know, in some ways, in terms of, of risk, this can be guided by the 80-20 rule. So using some predictive analytics to focus in on where your risk is, or using AI to help you understand trade flows and again be getting at risk or better triangulating the data available to you in your organization on suppliers such as integrating some of your food safety data but really at the end of the day what you need what we need is reliable data from our suppliers and the other tricky part that is highly related is the significant presence of labor agents and agencies throughout the supply chain so you may map your supply chain and, and the sites and the sub-tiers, but you also need to map your labor, so to speak, because some of the sites that we're working with, some of the sites that our clients and um, many of our companies are working with may have 10 or 12, 15 labor agents at one site. So even getting access to the sub-tiers is not sufficient. You need to also understand uh, the labor agents and the mapping as well. Thanks, Megan. Of course, no food brand wants to be involved in a scandal, but unfortunately, these events keep occurring. What is the impact of a worker welfare scandal on these businesses and what can they do to avoid it? Well, I think the challenge that human rights and responsible supply chain professionals right now are really grappling with is that per UNGP guidance on remediation, a cornerstone of remediation is ensuring that impacted stakeholders, children in this case of all the recent press, are not in a worse position than they were. Um, but then we've also seen subsequent articles from the New York Times that due to the recent raids and investigations, there have been a number of negative consequences, such as children have been dismissed by their jobs, but are working in other local meat plants. They may not be in school. And in some cases, their families have been exposed to child abuse charges, maybe serving jail time and maybe facing potential deportation. So, you know, for those of us that have been around for a long time and remember the exposés of child labor and stitching soccer balls back in the 1990s for the World Cup, as an example, we learned how do we put children not in a worse position than they were, right? And I think in this case, ultimately, the industry did work together, and this led to mitigation of some of the human rights impacts. And interestingly, interestingly there were three pillars to this work. The first was prevent and progressively eliminate child labor through workplace monitoring. The second was provide social protection to the affected children. And the third was to strengthen the Pakistani government and NGOs to prevent and progressively eliminate child labor. 
So, you know, in the modern day world, in this U.S. context, monitoring needs to include a combination of site assessments, including, for example, expanding them to include nighttime surveillance. It needs to include labor agency assessments and grievance mechanisms. So while many companies already assess their U.S. sites, labor agency assessments are not yet the norm, and there's not industry-wide grievance mechanism. As noted above, including labor agencies in your scope is a lift, but it's, you know, I'd say it's certainly part of the answer. Likewise, grievance mechanisms can be profoundly effective, uh, especially when looked at from an industry perspective. You can take, for example, Elevate's Amater Kota in Bangladesh, which is a sector-wide grievance mechanism established after the collapse of Rana Plaza. Even after 10 years, it's receiving 10,000 calls per month, which are then followed up on and remediated appropriately. And so I think the learning here, though, is that for grievance mechanisms to be effective, they need to not only follow the UNGPs, but in order to do this effectively and at a reasonable cost, this actually requires significant scale and hence significant collaboration. On the second pillar, you know, providing social protections to children could include identifying and working with local NGO and legal aid partners already trusted by the immigrant population. You know, my view is that a collaboration between these NGOs and particularly the legal aid groups um, through the implementation of an industry grievance mechanism could be incredibly, incredibly powerful. But I think it's this third pillar that's one of the most interesting, but honestly, one of the most provocative areas. And this is the concept of engaging and strengthening government, because in this case, it's actually the U.S. government. So if we look at 2023, you know, we've seen eight bills to weaken child labor protections that have been introduced across various Midwestern states. So, for example, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, South Dakota. And, you know, keep it in mind, that's where a lot of our food companies are also based is within the Midwest. You know, in Arkansas, a bill repealing restrictions on work for 14 and 15 year olds has now been signed into law. And the Iowa Senate actually passed a bill allowing minors as young as 14 to work night shifts. Similarly, the states like Missouri and Ohio are considering bills that allow teenagers to work longer hours of jobs that were previously considered too dangerous. So these state bills, and this is what's interesting, are often supported by state industry and business associations that are comprised of global companies that are simultaneously strengthening their human rights commitments. So in some cases, what we're seeing, these laws may not be in alignment with existing codes of conduct or the general direction that many companies in the industry is going uh, with their codes of conduct, which is alignment with the ILO conventions on child labor. Therefore, I think a first step could be potentially strengthening internal collaboration and alignment between human rights and government affairs teams to ensure alignment and or you know, making sure at least is incorporated into the conversation. Secondarily, I wonder if we need to go farther um, and think a little bit differently given the juxtaposition that, that we're currently in and the pressure that is being put on businesses as it relates to labor and human rights. So while government affairs teams have typically been more focused on trade or business access, supply chain resiliency, again, as we learned through the pandemic, is greatly affected by labor. I think really we need to ask ourselves whether we are at a time where we need to therefore engage differently. So just you know a couple of examples 
last year prior to launching guidance on U.S. labor agencies and their expectations at the CBP conference in June, uh, the U.S. DOL and USAID reached out to some retailers for endorsement of this policy and guidance. However, perhaps it's time for legal and government affairs divisions to not, you know, be asked to sign off on it or endorse it later, but to instead more aggressively attempt to shape such guidance before they are ready to be published. Likewise, maybe there is an opportunity to support or, you know, have influence on uh, bills designed to address the root cause of labor shortage such as the now defunct Farm Workforce Modernization Act. The latter, of course, companies will shy away from, but ultimately, you know, the root cause is labor shortage. So we need to be thinking about how do we address that? Because that is what our suppliers are saying, you know, again and again, we hear them loud and clear that that is a lot of the challenge that they're facing in terms of child labor in particular. I think you touched on this just now, but how exactly can food brands level up their due diligence programs to ensure they know exactly where their ingredients are coming from, what factory they were prepared in, and the welfare of all workers involved? Sure. Yeah. And as you mentioned, we've talked on it a little bit a bit above, particularly as it relates to mapping. However, overall, you know, what we need to remember is that companies are being asked to go broader in their supply chains and operations. So extending their programs to labor agencies, logistics suppliers, et cetera, they're clearly being held accountable for those, but they also need to go deeper. So they need to go all the way through the sub tiers to the production. So what this means is there needs to be a much more rigorous prioritization than we've ever seen. The scope is tens of thousands of suppliers at a minimum. So also, as we've learned at the pandemic, change, you know, is the new normal. Looking and updating risk every two or three years is not sufficient. Human rights risks need to be monitored on a closer to real-time basis. So I think that's part of it. Another part of it is recognizing that it's no longer one-size-fits-all auditing model, and what is considered sufficient due diligence is definitely evolving. Therefore, tools need to be built and deployed for purpose. So, for example, tools that, that address the most salient risk topics, whether it be forced labor, child labor, harassment, discrimination, these tools need to be deployed and need to be leveraged with various new technologies that may now be available to us. So from predictive risk AI to effective deployment of worker surveys at scale or use of apps designed to understand, support, and protect migrant workers on their journeys, as an example. Great. Thanks, Megan. To end on a slightly more positive note, I wondered if you could share an example of best practice you have seen or heard about in terms of social sustainability in the food industry. Oh, wow, Holly. There's there's so many. It's a really exciting time that we're in, to be honest with you. And right now, particularly, companies are working really fast and furious to adjust their programs to meet these new expectations and to protect human rights and are really thinking from an innovative perspective. But I think what I'm most jazzed about, to be honest with you, what I'm most excited about is that I'm seeing such a large uptick in clients rolling out really new and aggressive two to three year roadmaps. And these roadmaps and internal commitments are taking programs that have been more kind of pilots or kind of niche programs, such as work around labor agents or worker surveys, and really taking those to scale. And what we also see are these clients um, are taking steps towards truly integrating the programs, particularly on the data side. And those 
particular clients, those particular programs are what I'm seeing as having a real leg up in their effectiveness and, and ability to address human rights impacts. That's great to hear. Thanks again for joining us, Megan. Thanks for listening to the Future in Focus podcast. Please visit our homepage on Spotify to listen to more episodes and stay up to date with new releases. And to find out more about LRQA's services, please visit www.lrqa.com. Music